Refuge is a safe place. Refuge is a safe place. Refuge is a safe place for all people. For all people. For all people to explore and restore. To explore and restore. To restore and explore. To explore and restore their faith in Jesus and His church. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus. And His church. Huh? And His church. And His church. You know how I told you I grew up Pentecostal? <laughs> so that's where I get the teaching bug and the preaching bug from. Um, hello, my name is Nicole. Um, if you don't know me, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Refuge. And if you do know me, that's my mom. I was. Uh, it's been many, many, many moons since we've shared this stage together. So tonight was, it was real special for me. Um, but tonight, uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, we're going into a six-week series on the synoptic gospel. We're leaving behind Paul and his very long emails and the daunting task it is to preach an entire book of the Bible in 30 minutes. Um, if, like, if you think it's hard, go try and read one of those books in 30 minutes, let alone try to figure out how to preach from it. And in that series, we talked about how Paul pointed us to Jesus, and over the next six weeks, we get to actually talk about Jesus. And I'm really excited for this series. Um, I don't know how it's going to go, but it's in God's hand of, hands, and I'm super excited about it. So to start tonight, I want to ask you a question. Has anybody heard the story of the blind men and the elephant? Did someone say yes? I don't know. I don't know who's heard it, who hasn't. So, but I want to share it with you tonight real quick. It's an old Indian parable that goes a little something like this. It says, once upon a time, there lived six blind men in a village. They had heard many stories about elephants, but never actually encountered one themselves. One day they heard that an elephant would be passing through their village. So they eagerly gathered to touch and experience this magnificent creature. As the blind men approached the elephant, they extended their hands and began to experience the different parts of its body. The first man touched the tail and said, an elephant is like a long, thin rope. The second blind man touching the elephant's leg disagreed and said, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk, sturdy and strong. Meanwhile, the third blind man who was touching the elephant's side said, you're both wrong. An elephant is like a wall, wide and flat. The fourth blind man who had come face to face with the elephant's tusk argue, argued, I can assure you all, an elephant is sharp and pointed like a spear. The fifth man touching the elephant's ear laughed and said, you're all wrong. It's clear that an elephant is like a large fan, thin and flapping. Finally, the sixth blind man holding the elephant's trunk stated, no, 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 you're all wrong. It is so obvious that an elephant is long and flexible, much like a snake. The blind men continued to argue passionately, unable to reconcile their conflicting perspectives. When a wise observer intervened and explained to them that each were correct in their own way. He urged them to listen to one another, to combine their individual experiences, to gain more of a complete understanding on what an elephant truly was. It's also a poem, and the last two stanzas read like this. And so, the blind men heeded the call. Each shared their experience, one and all. 
As they pieced their knowledge together, the elephant's true nature they did uncover. With open hearts and minds aligned, they saw the truth no longer blind. For in their union, a lesson profound that truth is better when diverse views are found. Each man touched a different part of this elephant and in their own limited perspective, their own limited experience informed what an elephant was. And they put it all together. So in the same way, the gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, experienced Jesus in different way, his life, his ministry, um, from their own vantage points. And through their writings, we get to touch different aspects of Jesus's life. We get to see and understand him more deeply through different points of view. Like I said, we are talking about the synoptic gospels, and I'm excited about this uh, series. I even am super excited about the artwork. I was showing everybody, I was like, look what I did. I'm so proud. (laughs) I showed my partner, and she was like, what does synoptic mean? And I was like, okay, I get it. And sometimes in my upbringing, I just say words assuming everybody else understands. So real quick, let's talk about what the synoptic gospels are. Simply, it is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These three books of the Bible are classified as the synoptic gospels. They are called this because they share similar viewpoints. They tell different stories, but some stories overlap from different perspectives, but they share similar viewpoints. They provide parallel accounts in the synopsis of Jesus's life, his teaching, his ministry, his miracles, all that Jesus did. These three books record it. A lot of the same stories and from different perspectives. Scholars believe that the Synoptic Gospels were composed independently by their respective authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they drew from common sources, including written accounts, oral traditions, and eyewitness accounts. There's a really good book called The Case for Christ, and it talks a little bit about the Synoptic Gospels. And I just want to share a couple of quotes from that book with you tonight. It says the Synoptic Gospels provide a reliable account of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. While each gospel writer has his own style and purpose for writing, their accounts harmonize and cooperate one another, giving us a comprehensive picture of who Jesus was, much like each blind man who had a different perspective of what an elephant was, bringing it all together for a comprehensive picture of what it was. The Synoptic Gospels demonstrate remarkable consistency in their portrayal of Jesus' life and teachings. Despite variations in wordings and emphasis, their core content aligns, reinforcing the historical reliability of their accounts. So over the next six weeks, the series is going to be six weeks long. We're going to be teaching from three stories. That doesn't mean that you can come every other week and still get the same stuff, so don't try to skip church on me now. But each gospel has a different perspective. And each teacher is going to have a different perspective and a unique view of that gospel. And that is the beauty of our teaching team. Just as the blind men had different perspectives of an elephant, just so do we, Brian, David, and I. We bring our own perspective, our own lived experience to scripture and, and, and to our teaching, the way we teach and preach and study. But it all comes back to the foundation of Jesus. Brian once shared how differing our backgrounds are, Mormons, Southern Baptists, 
Pentecostal. You got a little taste of that tonight. Church of God. Like we all have these different experiences that speak to how we read scripture, how we teach scripture, how we believe scripture. And so that's what makes this series so exciting is getting to hear the unique perspectives of, of the same story. It might not be exciting for you, but we as teachers, we're really thrilled. We're looking forward to it. So just humor us, would you? <laughs> so without any further ado, I'm going to kick us off tonight by talking about the temptation of Jesus. This story is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark is very brief about it. He gives it maybe four uh, verses, which is why... We're not teaching from Mark because it's like, and Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and it keeps moving forward. And so before we get to the text and the story of the temptation of Jesus, I want to talk about the terminology we're using here tonight because you know me and how I love a good word study. So the Greek and the Hebrew, Hebrew use of the word that we now translate to temptation has both negative and positive connotations. In a negative light, To tempt or have temptation would be to indicate a hostile enticement to lead someone to a deliberate evil act against God or another person. And then um, it has a positive feel to it because when it's used in the the, uh, form, it says test, it's meant to prove someone's faithfulness or their good character or their integrity. The, the object of this kind of test and temptation is to determine a person's faithfulness and commitment to God or their calling. The positive results from this kind of test from God would be being approved by God, being transformed by God, improving the will of God. James 1.12 says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the truth. And Romans 12.2 says, do not copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think so that you will learn God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We see this exemplified through scripture, through men like Job and Abraham. God tested them and they demonstrated great faithfulness to God. Rabbis understood this kind of testing comes from God to the people that God loves. God does not tempt or test people to do evil. Instead, he uses circumstances to test and prove a person's character or resolve with the intended purpose for good. Genesis fifty twenty says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now be- being done, the saving of many lives. And we know in Romans eight twenty eight says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So let's look at the temptation of Jesus. I'm teaching from Luke tonight. Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 say this. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time, and he became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. 
Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you all the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he he left him until the next opportunity came. So this story, like I said, is across all three synoptic gospels. And it's near the beginning of each book. If you did, if you noticed the homework this week, if you did it, if not, that's okay. Uh, you'll, you do lose brownie points with me, but it's still okay. But uh, on Facebook, I shared to read this passage and then go to find this story in the other Gospels, in, Ma- in uh, Matthew and Mark. And if you notice something about it, is that they're right up front in the books. Matthew, I believe, is from chapter 4 also. This story is in chapter 4. And it's right at the top for a few reasons. Because one of those reasons being the initial victory over Satan and these tests and temptations signifies the beginning of Satan's defeat. Spoiler alert, he loses. And this story sets up the reader that Jesus is the protagonist, Satan is the antagonist, who will eventually lose. These encounters will identify Satan for the, uh, will identify for the reader Jesus' self-perception. In this story, we get to understand how Jesus sees himself. We get to see how Jesus understood his mission to establish the kingdom of God. And to encounter the cross. And he would be faced with temptations like this to deter him from that mission. His self-perception comes from Luke 3.22 when God says, You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. This, the temptations that follow confirm who Jesus was, what his mission on earth. And this is up front. Because this is a private moment for Jesus. Jesus was alone in the wilderness, fasting alone, wandering alone, praying alone. So this further supports the idea of oral tradition. That Jesus shared these intimate moments with his disciples who would later record them for us to read. All three of the Gospels agree that this takes place in the wilderness. His fast in the wilderness is significant. A period of 40 days and 40 nights indicates a time of preparation. Numbers are huge in the Bible, and 40 indicates a time to prepare, especially as it relates to God's working or God's call in someone's life. Fasting was often used to also prepare, to focus one's attention in prayer, to, to align and discipline the mind, the body, and the soul to work together. This time of hardship and testing was to prepare Jesus for his life and ministry because his life and ministry would be difficult. All four Gospels emphasize the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus after he was baptized, which is a story that takes place before the temptation of Jesus. And the Synoptic Gospels all agree that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to engage the enemy. The enemy is introduced in three different ways through the Synoptic Gospels. And in Luke, he is called the devil. 
I want to jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and kind of show you some parallels we see here in Scripture. Uh, 1545 says, The Scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. And this is important because we see parallels in Adam's temptation in the garden and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Adam was the first son of God who failed to um, accomplish, to, uh, failed to uh, overcome temptation and testing. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, would fulfill would fulfill and succeed. He, Adam failed in idyllic conditions of the garden, and Jesus would succeed in the difficulty of the wilderness. Death was the result of Adam's failure, but Jesus' suffering and his temptation will enable him to make atonement for all people and bring life to all people. Places where Jesus spent most of his childhood also fulfills prophecies and points back to the history of Israel. In Matthew 2, 14 through 15, this is after Jesus has been born. Herod is killing babies. It says that night Joseph left for Egypt with the children and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord has spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Egypt is significant to the history of Israel because it is where they were enslaved and it is where they left with Moses and it is then they wandered for the desert through the desert for 40 years. Jesus' victory in the temptations surpassed the experience of Israel and Moses who spent 40 years wandering. We know the spirit was with Israel through a cloud by day and fire by night. But Jesus unlike Israel, was fully obedient to the Spirit's leading. These temptations reenact and even point us to Israel's history where they failed, but Jesus succeeds. The allusions to the fall of Adam and the failures of Israel in the wilderness call for God's new beginning. Jesus was the true Son of God, and he will now rectify the previous failures from Adam to Moses to the time he walked the earth. Not only this, but victory over temptation in the wilderness stands out as an example for us as followers of Jesus that there is victory over tests and trials and temptations for those who trust in Jesus. Satan's entire plan from the start of Jesus' ministry to today um, was to foil God's plan for the new humanity. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God's plan was a new humanity for people to be known by generosity, love for one another, and justice. And this is the plan that Satan was trying to stop. He made attempt after attempt to disqualify Jesus as the sinless Savior and obedient Son. He was unsuccessful in the wilderness, and he would continue to be unsuccessful throughout Jesus' life and ministry. There's one verse in this passage that compelled me to preach from Luke instead of Matthew, and it's Luke 4.13. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Jesus was not only tempted in the desert, he was not only tested in the wilderness, but the whole of his ministry was one big test and temptation as he worked to establish the new humanity, to establish the family of God, to establish the kingdom 
of God on earth. At the Last Supper, he says this to his disciples. You have stayed with me in my time of trial. The whole three years of ministry is my time of trial. And just as my father granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Jesus' life was one of continuous tests and trials and temptations. The primary source of testing came mainly from religious leaders in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These leaders would frequently test Jesus, trying to catch him in, in heresy, trying to get him to say or do the wrong thing, approaching him and testing him, getting him to say something incorrect. Matthew 12, um, uh, 38 through 40 shows us one of these examples. It says, one day... Some of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights." Although on the surface, this request seems harmless, Jesus saw it for what it was. It was a test. It was a temptation. It was a representation of the religious leader's unbelief. They were trying to test his authority, which was given to him by God. They were trying to test his identity, which was also given to him by God. Their intentions were to challenge Jesus, who he was. The ministry was what that he was doing. They were trying to undermine his credibility as a spiritual leader, as a rabbi. Testing whether or not Jesus truly had power and authority from God to do the miracles he was doing. And Jesus responds not by, do, like, if it were me, I would be like, okay, watch this, jerk. But Jesus points out how misguided their demands are. They lack faith. They lack understanding of spiritual things. And so rather than performing a miracle, which he could have done then, which he could have done in the wilderness, which he could have done on the cross, he points their focus and attention to the true sign of his impending resurrection, highlighting the greater truth, highlighting his mission to die for them so that they could experience true freedom from the law that they so rigidly rigidly adhered to underlying all of Jesus's tests and temptation was satan in matthew he's called the tempter and luke he's called the devil And Jesus was Satan's prime target to stop his mission, to stop Jesus from establishing God's kingdom and the new humanity humanity through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. We see uh, Satan's direct actions in the wilderness, and then we see indirect actions throughout all of Jesus' life. Attacks that hurt worse than just needing some bread after fasting. Attacks that probably got to the humanity of Jesus and made him question everything. Attacks that probably made the humanity of Jesus ask, should I keep going? Am I making a difference? Is this even worth it? Satan used religious leaders to try and deter Jesus. And I'm sure Jesus had no problem standing up to those attacks and being strong because who are they? They're jerks. That's just, I I keep saying jerks because I want to say worse words, but we're in church. So 
(laughs) I'm forgiven. (laughs) But aside from religious leaders, he also used Jesus' closest friends, his closest companions. Mark 8, 31 through 33 says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, with his best friends, with his inner circle, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. The audacity, am I right, to reprimand Jesus? Like, whoa. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then Jesus reprimanded Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for the difficult truth of his crucifixion. But Peter, in all his humanity, could not wrap his head around losing Jesus. So Peter rebukes Jesus. His intentions may have been to protect Jesus from suffering and death, as anybody would do for a parent or a friend or somebody close to them. Peter probably tries to dissuade Jesus from making the sacrifice. Like, shut up, dude. You're talking crazy. You don't have to do this. There's another way. But Peter was unintentionally trying to keep Jesus from his mission. Get behind me, Satan. I was working on my sermon today as, as my three-year-old kid was just not listening. And I've never wanted to scream, get behind me, Satan, <laughs> to another human being in my life. So what's happening here? Jesus is not actually calling Peter Satan as much as it seems that way. And then again, I do understand the urge to scream that at a defiant human being. Jesus recognizes what influence is behind Peter's words. Even though his good, he has good intentions, Peter's love and concern for his friend and teacher, Satan is still trying to set Jesus off mission. Luke 22, I'm just going to read through some scriptures here quickly about as Jesus neared the end of his life. Luke 22, 3 said, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. While he was still, uh, jump down to 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jump down to 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of a country yard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of the 12. I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you just for a minute think about how that would feel? Just Jesus glaring into your soul. God. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. 
We're told Satan enters Judas, whether that means literally or figuratively. We really can't say for certain, but Satan is the driving force behind the plot to kill Jesus. His goal is to deter Jesus from his mission of living a perfect life, to be the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, to give his life in order that all people would be welcomed into the new humanity, built around love for God and love for other people. But here's the thing is that Satan isn't stupid. Satan knew that Jesus' death on the cross, what it would accomplish— Satan knew that through Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death, mission accomplished. God available to all people, new humanity being able to be ushered in, bail, torn, boom, done, Jesus wins. So Satan's goal was not to kill Jesus because that's what he was sent to earth to do. Satan's goal was to keep Jesus from the cross. The Pharisees didn't need somebody to identify Jesus because their whole mission was against Jesus. Jesus was their enemy, so they knew exactly who Jesus was. The Pharisees did not need Judas. They could have killed Jesus without him, but Satan needed Judas. Satan's plans for Judas was not to get Jesus arrested and killed, but to break Jesus through betrayal. This act of betrayal came from within Jesus's inner circle and it probably broke him deep inside. It is a profound breach of trust and loyalty. What feelings of hurt and disappointment and sorrow and loneliness and abandonment this would evoke in the humanity of Jesus. What grief and anguish being fully God and fully man. I can only imagine how much this broke him inside. When we think about moments of betrayal from our own life, it's that gut punch that makes you question everything, that makes you want to quit everything, that cloud of depression and grief and anxiety that hang over you, that make you want to lay in bed all day, eat Skittles, and watch Netflix. This is what Satan was trying to produce in Jesus. Feelings of betrayal, abandonment, loneliness, sadness, depression. All of the emotions that make us as humans want to say, and what I believe made the humanity of Jesus say, is this even worth it? I'm not going to do it. If my closest friends could do this to me, if they could betray me, if they could deny me, what good is my sacrifice going to mean for anybody else? Fully God and fully man. I know how these feelings had to test his resolve and his commitment. I wonder if it made the humanity in Jesus question the worth and purpose of his ministry. But despite this immense emotional burden, Jesus did not waver. He did not shake. He did not deviate from his commitment to God's plan. 
He pressed on in his faith. He pressed on in his obedience. He pressed on in his love for humanity and it propelled him forward. Even after betrayal, even after denial and staring the cross in the face, Jesus did not let this test, did not let that waver. His character was proven. His integrity was proven. His commitment and love for God and love for people was sealed on the cross. In the midst of these trials, Jesus found strength and solace through his connection with God. His unwavering trust and understanding of the greater purpose behind his suffering. Ultimately, Jesus' response to tests and trials in the wilderness and in his life serves as an ultimate example of perseverance, sacrifice, and unwavering dedication to his mission to establish the kingdom of God. Jesus did what Adam could not. Jesus accomplished what Israel could not. As much as Satan tried to disqualify Jesus, as much as he tried to keep him from going to the cross, Jesus died and conquered death and the grave so that all people would be welcomed into God's family. All people could sit at his table. In the face of pain and heartbreak and depression and abandonment and fear and anxiety, he pressed on. He did what God set out for him to do from the moment that God said, You are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. We're going to face tests and trials because you know what? Life just sucks sometimes. But refuge is a safe place to sit and the suck, and it is okay to break and grieve and heal. But we can also find strength and perseverance in our connection with God and the understanding of greater purpose behind our suffering. Jesus' example teaches us to persevere, remain faithful, and trust in God's plan, even when faced with betrayal, doubts, or difficulties. I'm going to ask the band to come up Jesus' example teaches us to persevere, to remain faithful, and trust in God's plan, even when faced with betrayal, doubts, difficulties, hardships, pain, depression, anxiety, loss, grief, guilt. And like, I get it. It's easier said than done. It's easy to look at somebody and say, hey, don't be anxious. Hey, hey, just... Be happy, don't be depressed. It's easy to look at someone and say, don't be sad. Like I, like, I understand that. Like, I understand, and I understand saying, God is the answer is not help either. Like, I, like I get that. Like, I'm not here to tell you that I'm, he is the answer. Like, don't, please don't, please don't fire me. But it is our connection with God and how do we connect with God through studying his word, through, com- through community that we have here in this family at Refuge, and through worship. I'm going to invite you guys to stand. I'm going to pray. And we're going to go into a time of worship. Look, I don't know what crap you walked in here with. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I, what I do know is that life sucks. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it sucks a little, sometimes it sucks a lot. But right now we have the opportunity to connect with God. 
Not to take our problems away, not to take our fear away or anxiety or depression away, but to find hope and solace in the way maker and the love of Jesus and her friend who stood by us through the fire, who remained with us through all of the trials, all of the heartache, who made a way when it seemed like there was no way. So, Father, I thank you for being a way maker. I thank you for being a God who loves me. Father, I pray that your spirit would fill this room. And whatever heartache, whatever we're walking through tonight, God, we understand that you're not going to take it away. You're not going to magically heal our circumstances or magically take away our depression or magically make our anxiety float off. But through connection with you, we can connect to our mission, our purpose in life, and that is to love you and to love other people. We love you, we thank you, and we worship you.